am so warm, but I am so sad. But we will talk again later. Later okay. on, <laughs> later on, we'll have a quick chat. Oh, Sandra, I'm very, very sad. We'll, we'll be losing you. But yes, I am warm. It's warm as toast here in the studio, I have to say, though it's miserably cold outside here in Cape Town, where otherwise is coming to you talking women. And the team today, we've got Kim Winter, we've got Garnet and Quinica, and I'm Nancy Richards. And what we have on the show today, we're going to be starting off with a young woman who, with an MBA behind her, says that she feels that more women should make sure that they get one, and she'll be telling us exactly why. And then in our women's organisations, women's groups, women's initiatives slot, Ernst and Young will be telling us about their next-gen programme. And then, uh, yes, and they're, they're doing wonderful things to support the cause of young women and help move them forward. And finally, we'll be talking to the author of a book called The Delhi Deception. And it's really quite a book. I've been reading it this morning. And it's all to do with romance and human trafficking, all heavily flavoured by the sense of India. It's called The Delhi Deception. So do stay with us for all of that. What's news? Well, very briefly, um, I'd like to know that you are welcome. I'd like you to know that you're most welcome to send us your thoughts and responses to anything that you hear on the show. You can send us an email at otherwise at safm.co.za or on our Facebook page, pop us a message. It's uh, otherwise on SAFM. Well, on the strength of that, we had an email from a listener yesterday. I think it's Pam. Forgive me, I didn't actually print your name. But she says that... uh, We, I, asked us to comment on the fact that bystanders did nothing when a man physically abused a woman in a restaurant. I think that was on the show yesterday or the day before. Well, she says that Edmund Burke, an 18th century Irish philosopher, made the comment that all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. What a wise man. But she goes on to say that it's not only in violent situations that people do nothing. She cites a case of, I was driving to Durban with my daughter when I choked. I stopped the bucky at the side of the N2 and went to the back where my daughter tried to use the Schlamlich manoeuvre on me. We, myself and my daughter, were obviously in distress, but not one of the many Christmas vehicles passing by stopped to help us. She says, we seem to be living in an era where it's each man for himself and the basic norms of love, care and consideration are no longer part of our basic upbringing. Well, thank you, dear listener. And don't forget, if you'd like to send your responses on whatever you've heard here on, otherwise you're welcome. Otherwise at safm.co.city. Well, just before we start the show today, I have to say it is a day when we seem to be saying goodbye to some friends that feel very much like family here on SAFM. But it was on this very day some years ago that we said a very, very sad farewell to Monica Farrell. And her fans will remember her as the gentle voice of music, health and well-being right here on SAFM. Well, as we have done for the last couple of years, what we're going to do today is play a little bit of a musical tribute to Monica. This time with a piece of music to which she walked down the aisle just a few short years before she passed away. Her husband, Robert, says Monica was funny. She had two cats, Foxy and Bella. Foxy was neurotic and needy. Bella was beautiful and imperious. Monica used to say that the cats were two parts of her personality. Well, this majestic piece of music is very much a Bella piece. It handles the arrival of the Queen of Sheba. Thank you. 
go. Just a little snatch of that uh, very majestic piece of music to which uh, she walked down the aisle on her wedding day. That's in memory of Monica Farrell. That's for her fans, her friends, her family, and most of all for her husband. You listen to Otherwise. Stay with us. Otherwise with Nancy Richards. And here on Otherwise Talking Women, Talking Exceptional Women, our first candidate today is MBA graduate Lebohang Makubetsi. She's the owner of a company called Zen, who swears by her MBA. Well, we have her on the line to tell us all about it. Hi, Lebo. Hello, Nancy. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. So, obviously, yes. your MBA meant a huge amount to you. Give us a backstory. Why did you? Why and how did you get to be doing an MBA? Well, um, it was through the expansion of the responsibility and roles that I had taken on in my um, like professional environment that I actually saw that I needed to equip myself further and able to handle all those responsibilities. So obviously going through an MBA after an, a, a degree was a natural process for me in order to expand professionally and knowledge with the tools and equipment that an MBA offers one. Responsibilities like what? Uh, responsibilities in the sense that I was um, heading a team of seven um, in the marketing department and for, for people to manage other people, there are certain strategies and skills that you need which don't just come naturally and um, so the MBA is a course which sort of gives you an overview of a holistic organization and each and every piece of the organization is integrated. So in order to manage successfully a team of seven and um, contributes to achieving the organization's goals, you need to have certain strategies, tools, equipment, knowledge, and skills, which is what the MBA has provided mm. me with. I suppose, like anything, you don't know that you haven't had it until you've got it, if you know what I mean. Uh, yes. You know, you, you don't really know. You can sort of move on through life without one. But for yeah. you, it feels like it sort of enriched everything that you were already doing. Yes, it, it really has. The, the MBA program at Mopac Business School really has changed my life for the better because ever since completing it last year, um, amazing opportunities have suddenly opened up for myself and I can honestly say I thank not only the program but I thank my parents as well, you know, in, in terms of the environment that they have raised me in. Mm. Yeah. You know, one of the things that they do say about uh, an MBA, what do they call it, a marriage breaking or <laughs> arrangement or something like that. Uh, what I mean, not just specifically the one that you did, but generally MBAs. Did you find it very taxing? Were you doing it? Um, were you doing it at the same time that you were working? Um, actually, I decided to resign from my job to focus on the studies and for two years. But I, I can actually relate to what you're saying. Um, I had a fiancé at the beginning of the MBA course, and at the end it was no more. So, yes, if you don't have a strong support system, um, then it definitely will attribute, I mean, contribute to your experience throughout the whole two years of you doing the program. Yeah, it has been called a divorce degree, so I'm really... Yes, it is. <laughs> so, mm. uh, clearly then, or maybe maybe this is not fair, I was about to say, perhaps it doesn't give you um, the sort of life skills of how to juggle and manage your life in every aspect. You know what I think, um, why I think it is a divorce course, it's not because you're not ma able to manage aspects of your life, it's it equips you with so much knowledge that the decisions that you now make from a day-to-day -day basis, which involves decisions and decision-making processes that you learn at 
on the program. So when you have a partner who is not as strong as what you are becoming from equipping yourself with this magnitude of information and knowledge, then it becomes a problem. So it's not necessarily that the course itself doesn't teach you life skills, but it teaches you so much more of life skills that life needs to then sort of catch up with you and what you have learned and what you are implementing in your daily activities yes. of living. Yeah, sort of it broadens your, your outlook yeah. and broadens your potential because I yes. think in, in, as a result of that, I mean, you say that having got an MBA means that the sky's the limit, but in your case, I think it led you to doing a, a two-year leadership program with Novo Nordisk. What is that? Um, this is a fantastic opportunity which I am honoured to be a part of. So what Novo Nordisk does is every year they have a selection process for candidates who could potentially join the company. And um, from the 7,000 candidates who applied this year, only 48 were chosen. 117 were taken to an assessment centre in Denmark for two days where we were assessed on our skills because they obviously need bright young minds to um, join the company because the work that they do here is um, pretty much overwhelming and and fantastic. So you need to be a strong person. Yeah, what sort of work is that then? We we are into the business of saving lives. So we create awareness on diabetes, educate people on diabetes because it is quite a big um, sickness and a lot of people are not aware of it. So what Novo Nordisk does is generally create an awareness of diabetes and education for people out there. If you had one uh, opportunity to just give us one tip on how to prevent diabetes, it would be what? Well, my mom is actually a diabetic, so Mm. the reason why I actually even applied at the Novo Nordisk Graduate Program was because I wanted to expand my knowledge in regards to diabetes and how to live with it. And um, having lived with my mom with her condition, I know that the most important thing is your lifestyle, how you eat, what you do, and just taking care of yourself. Um, in terms of like healthy living and healthy choices that you make. So for me, I would say the advice, eat healthy, um, exercise, watch your sugar intakes. Personally, this is what I've learned from my mom. Did your mum always have it? Was she type 1 or type 2? I mean, are, are you concerned that it might in any way be hereditary? Um, she's a type 2 diabetic and obviously, um, having watched her for a couple of years now, checking her high blood pressure, checking her um, sugar levels and eating correctly, it, it made me want to become a part of that. See, my family and I are very close. We really believe in supporting each other in everything that we do do. So when someone has a condition such as that, we all want to get involved because we obviously now have to live with a person with a condition and we have to be educated and aware of everything that might be possible from that specific condition. So it goes with the case with my mom. Her type 2 diabetes is what actually led me to um, seek employment um, at Novo Nordisk Mm -hmm. in the first place. And when I got in, I was highly um, excited, obviously, for the opportunity of professional growth, but also at the opportunity that I will now be learning um, firsthand how to deal with diabetes. And obviously, I would be helping my mother out as well on things that I learned from work that maybe she might not have known or things that she's yet to know. So for me, that's why um, I joined this company and living with um, my mom with yeah. diabetes. I guess yeah. uh, everything comes, every come, everything sort of obstacle comes with a gift, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. just before you go, though, I see that it's you know you're already doing quite a number of things, but I see that you also started a nightclub called Zen. 
Yes, um, so this um, nightclub was an idea that my brother, sister, and myself had been toying with. And in essence, I, because my mom and dad have always imparted knowledge to me and pushed education throughout the whole family and guided us and afforded us the opportunities to actually implement whatever it is that we learn at school, I think it's my turn now to take that role of advisor and um, knowledge giver. So what we have done is we are located in Maboning Precinct, and it's actually my brother and sister who are heavily actively involved with this venture and all I can do having learned from the MBA with the skills that I have and the tools that I have is actually impart ways in which they can optimize their business so we work together we support each other and that venture is something which my brother and sister are going to be focusing on while I focus on changing lives the thing and saving that, lives. Yes, yes. Well, I must say, you know, the idea of saving lives and, and a nightclub seem to be diametrically opposed. You know, I'm not suggesting that your nightclub is noisy and rowdy, but there is that sort of aspect to it. How do you sort of consolidate the two? Well, you see, the thing is, what people might ask is, how do you, from one end to another end, do two completely um, different things. Mm. So what we believe is we actually believe in taking calculated risks and supporting each other. So when I have the passion to save lives and, um, you know, work for Novo Nordisk and learn about diabetes, my, my whole family supports me in that regard. And when my brother wants to try something in, that has to do with music and bringing people together and like creating a space where people can be safe and enjoy and have like conversations, like-minded conversations in a safe environment at the Maboning Precinct, which is actually a good thing, whereby they are rejuvenating and reviving the inner city of Johannesburg, you know, so that it's not all about um, having a party, loud music and getting drunk, it's actually promoting the city of Johannesburg, because we are very passionate about the country that we come from, you know, and the state in which it's in right now, it needs people to change the way that it is viewed, so it can go back to its former glory days. So, oh, yeah. gosh, what a lot of interesting things going on in your mind and in your life. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank yeah. you. Thank you very much for sharing and very best of luck with all your future endeavours and best yeah. of luck to your mum. Thank you. Thank you very okay. much for um, allowing me to have this opportunity to share a piece of my perspective with you. It's a pleasure. Take care. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Okay. Cheers. Bye, Nancy. Bye. Lebo Makobetsi. What an inspiration and what a, a story of the strength of families and families working together. Really nice. Lebo Hang Makobetsi. And uh, if you'd like to go along there, it's at the Mabonang Precinct in Joburg. It's a nightclub called Zen. Find out what it's all about. Stay with us. This week, Jerry Mufuking speaks to Dennis Goldberg. But you start somewhere. And I was prepared to go along and make the weapons and show people all over the country how to make them. In fact, to try and save us a lot of trouble, I went to a factory to see if they would make the hand grenade casings for us. I disguised them in the drawing I gave this factory owner and manager. I made out of cast iron. And then I said, we need 210,000 of these. Yeah. And I need them in six weeks. You can do that, right? And he looked at my little drawing and the weight of cast iron, which looked nothing like a hand grenade. And he said, you know, we made 15,000 hand grenades a year during the war. And I nearly fell off my chair. Because he guessed. It didn't take him... Don't miss Under the Skin. Jerry Mufuking in conversation with Dennis Goldberg. This Saturday evening, just after the 7 o'clock news. Otherwise, on SAFM... 
Well, yes, it is indeed. Otherwise, when we're talking women and we're keeping the focus very much on young women as this youth month draws to a close. And as you know, each and every Friday, we try to focus on an organisation or an initiative or a project or whatever it may be that focuses on women. And young women very much the focus of Ernst and Young uh, because they've made young women a target of their new, it's called the New Gen Programme. Well, Mandy Pakiri is CSR lead at the Africa People team there at Ernst and Young and we got on the line to tell us all about it. Hi, Mandy. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much. We've just been talking, I'm not sure if you were able to hear our earlier guest, we've just been talking to a young woman who's got her head very firmly screwed on. And I guess that's what you're looking at with the Next Gen programme, is, is getting young women up and running on the right path, if you know what I mean. Explain the Next Gen programme. Okay, so Nancy, what we've done in terms of the Next Gen programme is that we take girls in high school from grade 10 to 12 that show potential, that is, either leadership potential as well as academic potential, and we grow and develop them. But we take a long-term approach to this. So we don't just do an intervention that's a week-long or a month-long. It's actually what we would call a lifelong engagement. And we grow and develop their leadership capabilities, and we do this through a number of different interventions. I think one of our key interventions is around mentorship, and it's a one-on-one relationship that each girl has with a mentor, either from Ernst & Young or an alumni or a collaborative partner that we have. We also provide them with academic support and tutoring, and uh, we run annual leadership camps that are really geared towards developing their skill level and developing them around things like individual self-confidence, developing entrepreneurship, thinking around them, motivating them, giving giving them confidence and developing their leadership potential. So, um, you know, we we recently started this program. In fact, we started it last year, and we had our inaugural bunch of matriculants uh, that finished at the end of last year, and we had an 80% acceptance rate into university. So we've got 80% of our girls at university this year whom we've actually sponsored in terms of bursaries as well. So, you know, like I said, you can see it's a long-term initiative, and it's not something that's just a once-off. and. You know, we've taken on more girls this year as well. So uh, we've currently got 57 girls in Gauteng, and we recently launched in, in KZN in May, and we've got 25 girls in KZN. Are you gradually spreading across the country? Yes, we are. Mm. In fact, we're looking at Cape Town to launch towards the end of this year, and that's definitely on the cards, yeah. Mm. I have to say that these are 57 very lucky young women. They've been, been, yeah, absolutely, you know, especially as it goes on. They've been selected how, and are you going to specific schools, and how are you picking out the ones that you really want? Yeah, so we did pick uh, specific schools, Nancy. We worked with the Department of Education, basic education in Gauteng as well as in KZN, and we chose schools that were obviously in good standing, that had produced good results, and schools that were very willing to engage with us because it's very important that we have the engagement from the faculty and, importantly, from the teachers and principals. And uh, we then asked them for their top students and focusing on girls, and we selected the girls based on academics. We shortlisted, and thereafter we interviewed the girls and got to understand them, what their aspirations were, what their levels of motivation were, and selected based on that. Are they girls that are in any way... 
a disadvantage, you know, listening to Lebel earlier, it seems, you know, obviously there's been a great deal of family input, family support. Are yes. these girls, are, are you working with them and their families, or are they in any way um, girls that come from broken families or disadvantaged circumstances? Yes, I think um, a lot of our girls do come from disadvantaged backgrounds and families that are, in a sense, broken families. I think our intervention at this point is really to focus on the individual and how that individual can then, in turn, impact their family positively and make the change in their community. So it'll have an impact beyond yeah. the individual girl herself. Yes. Will, she be, will she be required to put back in at any yes. stage? In her yes, for sure. That is something that we are focusing on going forward. So one of the things that we are doing at the leadership camps is making sure that we instill that culture of giving back. Because these girls are receiving a lot from the firm, from Ernst & Young, we expect that they put back into their community. And, in fact, we are expecting every single school to have a CSR intervention in their community that is either entrepreneurship-based, environment-based, education, or eradication of poverty. So it's got to fit into those four pillars, and it's got to be a sustainable initiative that is run by the next-gen girls at that school. And the best um, initiative or the best project will actually get funding from Ernst & Young. So that's one of the ways we're making sure that there is an immediate give back into the community. How many girls are you choosing from any one school? And are they, um, I might have to ask you if you would stay with us after the news headlines, actually, Maggie, yep. because it'll be a few okay. questions. But let's start with this one. How many girls are there in each and every school? So it varies. I mean, we've got schools where we've actually, in one of our remote areas in KZN, we've got a girl, just one girl from a school. But the minimum is around three and the maximum is around five. So it's not a massive number of girls from each school. What I'm, uh, where I was really going with this question is really what is the attitude of all the other learners in the school towards these girls? You know, sometimes you can be singled yeah. out, good thing, bad thing. How are yeah. we coping with that? I think that definitely there is that um, difficulty that the girls Space of being singled out by Ernst and Young and being seen as the next-gen girl. But hopefully we are selecting girls that have the capability to deal with that and to turn it around in a positive for them as well, to be seen as role models within their school. But definitely it has been difficult for some of the girls because they are singled out within the school environment. Do you give them support on that? I mean, do you have, yes. you know, is that yeah. the sort of thing you could maybe workshop among For sure. It is something that we are that we are looking at and that we have certainly in terms of our mentorship program. But you know, further than this next gen program focusing on girls, we're also starting to focus on mentorship and coaching of boys in the next gen schools that we've chosen. So in the eleven schools that we have across Kauteng right now, we're actually looking to roll out in around August a program that looks at developing and coaching young boys at those schools as well. Okay, Mandy, do stay with us. I just want to get all the details, so we'll get onto that after the news headlines. Okay, thank okay, you very great. much. Thank you. Talking to Mandy Pakiri, telling us about the Next Gen Ernst & Young's Next Gen uh, program working with young women right the way through. It's 1.30, news headlines time with Asanda. Blessings.
Take care. We'll speak again. Thanks, Nancy. Sandra Mazzoniani for the last time here on Otherwise, but I'm sure we will speak to her at a later stage. Well, you're listening to Otherwise, where we are talking women. In a minute, we're going to be talking about a very intriguing book. It's called The Delhi Deception. It kept me awake last night reading through it, so uh, we'll be finding out a little bit more about it. We'll be talking to the author just now. But we've got Mandy Pakiri on the line. So um, just wanted to find out a little bit more, Mandy, uh, about the Ernst & Young New Gen uh, organization, because it really does sound wonderful. And just going back to what you were saying at the beginning, that you go to the schools, look for their top students. You know, there's something about the top students who will always be the top students. What about the not top students? Aren't those the one, the ones that need helping out? Yes, you know, certainly there is a great deal of work that needs to be done within our schooling system and I think within our country overall. Um, you know, as I said, we do look at the top students, but it's not necessarily that we're taking the top three students in every single school or the top three girls in every single school. We're probably taking the ones that are within the top ten, but maybe towards the bottom of the top ten, and we, you know, the ones that are starting to shine, but just need a little bit more polishing in order to make them shine even further. So that's actually the target that we have in terms of the next-gen goal. And just lastly, you get, well, not quite your lastly, because I need to get the details, but you say that this is a lifelong thing. At what point do you, do you, do you cut the apron strings? Um, I don't know. We're still so young in our uh, program, but in terms of cutting the apron strings, I'm not sure where that ends up because mm -hmm. what we're expecting is to create a network of girls. So our girls that we have currently in university, we're expecting them in a year or so to give back to the program and to start mentoring and coaching the girls that are entering into the program. So in a sense, you know, we don't ever want to cut those apron yeah. strings because at some point we want them to be, have an ongoing impact and involvement in the next-gen program. Yeah, what a good idea. So it sort of becomes cyclical to growing the next, the next crowd. Lovely. Well, Mandy, wonderful. Now, I'm sure there'll be people thinking, give me the details, give me the details. I want to sign my daughter up. How, do, how can, people, can people apply? Um, so the way that we've run it thus far is that we have looked at schools and we have taken girls from schools that, like I said, have been uh, recommended to us by the Department of Education. We've recently opened it up internally uh, within Ernst & Young to staff uh, of, of Ernst & Young and their kids as well. In terms of how other people could apply, I think that that's something we're going to look at for the next year. Okay. But certainly if there's any involvement or collaboration that you would like to do, be a mentor, be involved in some way in the program, tutoring, Whatever it is, we would love to hear from you. Okay, good. Well, let me give out your website, which I think is www.ey.com. www.ey.com. Yeah. Yes, and I can also share my email address and phone number with you at a later stage. Okay, perfect. Which Lovely. Well, uh, um, I think Kim's going to take that detail right down right now. Lovely. Okay. Mandy Bakiri, thank you very okay. much. Enjoy the rest Nancy, of the day. thank you very much for the time. Pleasure, pleasure. Take care. You're listening to Otherwise right here on SAFM. How do you stay warm while keeping your electricity bill low? Simply start by not switching on the electric heater. Instead, dress warmly, use a gas heater or hot water bottle, and snuggle under a blanket while watching TV. It will give you that much-needed warmth. This way, you'll take pressure off the power grid and reduce your electricity usage. So keep warm while using less electricity and help us beat the peak to keep South Africa powered up. ESCOM, powering your world.
Mahala airtime is back bigger and better. Hello, caller. How can I win 50% free airtime? I've got skills, eh? Uh-huh. I can rock climb without a harness, yeah, hit a hole in one with my eyes closed. Sure. I can even walk backwards Whoa. up and your Oh, my friend, you are a winner already just by being with MTN. All you have to do is recharge to get 50% Mahala airtime every day at any time to make free MTN to MTN calls, send SMSs, and use the internet. Sweet, but Now that's bigger and better Mahala for you. Conditions apply. Minimum recharge value is 10 grand. Introducing more savings from Specsavers. Now you can get between 250 and 1,000 Rand off the normal industry price for your prescription lenses. That's right, up to 1,000 Rand off your prescription lenses. Another reason why we are South Africa's leading eye care group. Change to Specsavers for affordable eye care and a whole lot more. T's and C's apply. There's a free show coming to the Cape Town International Convention Centre, and it's a show about you. It's about how your ancestors came to South Africa, what they did here, how they lived, who they fought against. It's about wars and land disputes, fairness and unfairness. It's about passion and faith and triumph. It's a show inspired by the centenary of a law we must now put behind us. It's about how we built a unique nation in the South Africa and how important it is that we recognise that and hold on to it. How important it is that we embrace each other as we move on. It's about your life looking back and looking forward. It's on exhibition and it's free. Cape Town International Convention Centre, 20th and 21st of June. Come see for yourself. Otherwise, on SAFM. And otherwise it is talking women here. Well, finally, we've kept, uh, we've kept the spiciest for last on the show today because the book we're going to be talking about next is called The Delhi Deception. It's a novel, so it tells us on the back of romantic betrayal, modern-day sex trafficking, and it's set in India. And the heroine is Carla. She's a Harvard-educated CNN reporter of mixed Indian-South African heritage who gets drawn into a geopolitical conspiracy while visiting an old college friend in Delhi. Well, that's what it says on the back. What it says on the inside is, my goodness me, it's had my eyes out on stalks. It's been, it's been a, a roller coaster read, I have to say. We've got the author in the studio with us. She's Ilana Sabarwal. And she's, interestingly, the, uh, the mother of four daughters. So, once again, I think to myself, how on earth did you get to write it, Alana? Lovely. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me here. It's your first novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose the question is, why did you write it? I, I, you've got plenty of other things to do. You're uh, co-owner of a chain of Indian restaurants. Why did you decide <laughs> to write a book? Um, well, I guess um, I love stories. Um, my kids grew up with me telling them bedtime stories. So that kind of kept my sort of creative um, thinking going. Going. Obviously, didn't have time to write the book. And um, when my eldest daughter was 17, when she was 14, I had this lovely story. In fact, I was in India for a wedding, so on my way back, I didn't have a good book, so I kind of just invented a little story to keep me busy. Um, so I told her about it, and I said she could be my ghostwriter. And she said, Mom, don't be daft. You can do it. Just try. So being a mom who tells their daughter, you know, I tell my daughters all the time, you can do anything, be anything. I was kind of challenged, so I thought, okay, well, pen to paper, and I loved it. It's kind of the most fun thing I've ever done. Okay, well, there you go. I guess you can see you loved it because it's sort of come tumbling out with all sorts of <laughs> images that clearly you've, you, you know, they do say that you write about what you know, and clearly there's a lot of what you know in here. Right. And I must say, talking about the Delhi deception, that your husband is of Indian descent. That's right, he's Indian. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's Indian. Mm-hmm. And I think the two of you spent a year there. Did, did you meet, fall in love here in South Africa? No, 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 no. Actually, I was living in Italy 
this is when I was still in fashion, and um, he was also in Italy. He was in Torino, between Geneva and Torino. He's a physicist. And um, I, I then changed jobs and worked for a company who sent us to India to get our ranges out, literally produce our, our, our designs. And he was in between contracts, and we met and fell in love there. Hmm. <laughs> Physics and fashion uh-huh. doesn't feel like the, the most comfortable <laughs> co- co- sort of a combination there, but I think that in the book, mm-hmm. um, have we got a physicist somewhere in the yes, book? Yes, uh, Harry Singh, her, her friend's yes. husband. Ooh, Harry Singh, he's mm-hmm. a dodgy character. Uh-huh. Okay, before we get on to the, the plot, mm-hmm. um, tell us a little bit about the heroine. I mean, she is, she is not you because no. she is part South African and part Indian herself. Right. However, mm-hmm. um, not a million miles from where you sit, uh-huh. given what you know. Just tell us a little bit more about her. Um, well, it was quite interesting because when I started writing it, she was a white South African, and I guess, you know, we all would like to be our heroine in the story we write. Um, um, but then Random House India sat with it for a long time. They, they really wanted it, but they felt it wasn't Indian enough for, because at the times, Random House India is really printing for the subcontinent. So I suggested, what if I made her half Indian? I can relate to it because my daughters are half Indian. So she said, well, try it. And I'm so glad I did because I think it definitely gave the book some depth, but more interest. The editor there loved it, but then say, but then when she sent it out to marketing, they came back. They said it's still not really Indian enough. It's it's really better for the international Western market. So anyway, so that's how Carla became who she is. Um, and I mean, I, I kind of see my daughter in her. I see a bit of myself. I see a little bit of characters, some fictional characters, and. Um, yeah, I think she's a very brave, um, brave young lady. A little selfish, you know, sort of self-conscious, but um, I enjoyed mm. writing her. And interestingly, I believe that, uh, you know, whilst you've now written a book that has a more wider appeal, I think mm-hmm. the book's doing very well in KwaZulu-Natal. It is, yes. Not surprisingly, perhaps. <laughs> well, it was, in a way, because, I mean, you know, when Random House India said it's really not for the Indian reader, mm. I was quite surprised that we're proving them to be incorrect. Mm. Well, let's let's leave the, the marketing mm-hmm. alone, because mm-hmm. marketing is another one of the things that you do. But let's, right. let's get Carla, because mm-hmm. um, she decides, although her own father mm-hmm. left... Uh, India, mm-hmm. you know, sort of in uncomfortable circumstances, he sort of distanced himself from mm-hmm. his family on account of his choice of bride. bride. <laughs> right. um, but she decides that she wants to go back there and find her roots. Right. So tell us why she goes back and what happens along the way. Um, okay, well, well, basically she was very close to her grandfather and he used to visit her when she was studying in America. Um, but but um, she never managed to get the relationship between her father and grandfather going. And there's a little, I have a, there's a little history of that in my own Indian family. Um, so um, what happened was, so when this opportunity came for her to visit her friend, who she was at college with, she decided to, to visit her friend and to meet the rest of the family and her, and her grandfather had left her a property but um, en route she decided to visit her husband who was uh, in Peshawar at the time away on business as it on was. business yes she was you know she caught him in bed literally with the, his colleague and um, so when she arrived in Delhi she was both um, quite hurt betrayed but um, I think ready for a change, you know, ready for some kind of healing. Well, and a change she got, <laughs> because very soon after her arrival, she goes to visit her friend and mm-hmm. stays with them. And then 
you know, we need to give the, we need to give some of this away because it's important right. because <laughs> it's all a lot to do with human trafficking, sort mm-hmm. of sex trafficking That's as well. Right. Mm-hmm. And she gets caught up in this. Right. Um, I have to ask, what's your experience of this? That you uh, did you do? Have you witnessed any such thing or? Oh, no, no, not at all. Um, You know, when I first started putting that into the novel, I I needed it to drive the plot, uh, you know, as my readers will obviously discover. And um, I kind of, I wouldn't say I did it carelessly, because obviously it is something very serious, but it's not something I had experience or certainly know of of firsthand of of it. Um, So when I started writing about it, it was all kind of fictional in my mind, I would imagine. And then obviously to make it a bit more serious, I thought I did some research, and I was shocked, absolutely shocked at how serious and how prevalent it actually is. So, um, I mean, I can write a whole other book about it, but obviously at the time I had decided this was a more commercial, romantic um, novel, mm. so I couldn't go too deeply into it. But, um, yeah, basically, yeah, so really just through research and watching some programs, CNN did something. Yes, uh, we've heard this before, actually, on mm-hmm. this program, I think, mm-hmm. how serious it is in mm-hmm. India, and, and mm-hmm. serious, because it's not just in the underworld, it's, it's all the upper world who mm-hmm. are involved in the well, underworld it, as well. Yeah. Is, is that the sort of thing that you find? And how did you do your research? Um, Difficult to research, because so much of it is... Underground. Well, this is it. So um, I didn't speak to anyone, so I don't have any real source. Um, It was on the Internet, and I did did quite a thorough research, and I came across very interesting blogs written by by women who um, knew of people who were caught up in this. So whether they are hoax kind of blogs or real blogs, I don't know, because they come and go on the Internet. Um, You'd be surprised if you actually sort of did a bit of, you know, sex trafficking googling. And um and then basically I think the media there there has been quite a few stories in the media and um yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you what you do have is the background. You know, you have the setting because mm-hmm. you spent some time in India. I That's think you right. Lived, uh, for yourself, yeah. yourself for a year. Mm-hmm. So you, you could visualize walking exactly. down the street and exactly. where Carla was yeah. getting into little tuk-tuks and what was going right, on right, yeah. in the old Delhi market. Mm-hmm. And what's it. So it's very sort of captivating, mm-hmm. uh, visually speaking. You can sort of smell the scent of, mm-hmm. of India. How was it living there? Oh, I loved it. Where, whereabouts in India were you living? Well, in Delhi. Um, my husband's family have a, have a lovely house, and literally the house in the book is our house. <laughs> you know, it's, it's in the same, it's the same um, road next to the same gardens. And um, I thought it was a fascinating experience living there. Um, and I managed to, it was quite comfortable, so it's, it's easy to adapt to that lifestyle. Um, at the same time, you know, you go on a road and you have terrible, terrible beggars, but, but it's somehow in India, you can, you can live in both these, these worlds, these sort of contrasting elements, and, you know, it keeps mm-hmm. you thinking. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. And, but as a white woman, did you feel um, out of place? Um, not at all. I think I'm um, surprisingly. Um, I think because the family I married into is very, very accepting. Because in certain these families, certainly, I think there's a lot of a um, little bit of antagonism towards a white bride. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, mean, I know quite a few as stories. As you write about, yeah, yeah. But um, I think I had a wonderful father-in-law, very intelligent, open-minded man, and I spent. I was. I'm interested. I was interested in him. I was interested in the family, and I think this helped make me, you know, integrate into the society because I had this natural wanting to know them. Of course, a few novels like Vikram Seth, Suitable Boy, helped me because that's 
every Indian family has those characters. <laughs> so Bollywood films. I mean, my daughters grew up with Bollywood films. So I think that is probably the reason I think I fit in. Got Bollywood film, and we got a lot of uh, very Western fashion too. There are mm-hmm. names in here, brand names all, right. <laughs> all over the books, belying your, or at least sort of backing up the fact that you've been very much in the fashion thing. Right. You say it was a fascinating experience living in India. Was it mm-hmm. a fascinating experience because you, you self-published? I think. Right, right. Yeah. Um, where is it available, and has it sort of triggered your interest in writing more? Oh, absolutely. Now I'll read how I'm um, chapter eight of my next novel. Okay. Um, um, basically, this is a second print run. This is kind of like a trial print friend was digitally printed in America and it's done really well you know we're really quite excited and um, I'm very lucky to be lucky to be working with luxury brands because I think you need if you're going to self-publish you need a PR company behind you and um, they really believe in my book so even you know so it, it helps an author and we now have printed um, properly we have a distributor so it should be in all mo- most retailers probably within the next week or two okay so you can just go to any Leading bookshop and and find it there. Exactly. Fantastic. Well, it's certainly something uh, something very different, and I'm no doubt that there will be many more where that comes from, because as you say, you've only just begun, really. Okay. <laughs> Ilana Sabarwal, and uh, thank you very much. The book is called The Delhi Deception. If you'd like to get hold of a copy, I don't think you'll battle. I'm sure it's going to be in all the leading bookshops very soon. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ilana. And don't forget, if you're a book fan, don't forget SAFM Literature coming up on Sunday right here on SAFM with me, Nancy Richards, between 1 and 4. Thanks very much to the team today. That's uh, Kim Winter and Garnet and Quinica. Next up, Shop Shop, the children's programme.